All right, so Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to be today. So we're going to look at this passage in Luke 7, and I've, I've titled this lesson, A Sinner Dinner, because uh, that's what it is, and we're going to be looking at that, and it's one of my favorites, as I said, because I think it does show us our Savior, and consequently ourselves, rather clearly. So before we jump into the specific passage there at the end of chapter 7, we're going to get some context, see what's going on in in the life of Christ here, and get an overview of what's going on in the whole chapter. And it's uh, action-packed. So just the picture we get of Christ in this this one chapter, and that should be enough to bring us to Him. And it starts off, again, we're in Luke chapter 7 with Jesus entering Capernaum, and the very first thing is this episode with the centurion. So this centurion, he had a highly valued bondservant who was sick and on the verge of death. And when he heard Jesus was near, he sent the elders of the Jews to to go get Jesus to come help with his bondservant. And Jesus hears them, And he starts toward the centurion's house. And as he gets near, uh, he sends his friends out to tell Jesus, "Don't, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. Therefore, I did not even presume to come to you. I mean, listen to that hard attitude there. Right, that, the humility in this centurion. I'm not worthy to come to you or even to have you come to me. I'm just asking for undeserved grace. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. You have the power and authority. I know it. I recognize who you are and I recognize your power and authority. Because he says, I too have a degree of authority. And I tell people what to do and they do it. So just say the word. And then it says, Jesus marvels at his faith. So what was it and how was it manifested? Well, we we hear the, the fruit of repentance there. I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. Even come under my roof. And the fruit of belief there, right? You have authority over all of this. Just say the word and it will happen. You don't have to be here. Just say the word. So I love that word in verse 9 of marvel, right? That Jesus marvels at His faith. And I found that word in two other places. Once where Jesus marvels at unbelief. And then there's here where he marvels at belief. And then once where when Jesus returns, it says in 2 Thessalonians 1.10, that we the saints will marvel at him at his return. So it's this sense of wonder with admiration. And so it sounds almost blasphemous here, but Jesus marvels at a human here, this centurion. Well, you mean that the God-man marveled at him? Yes, at his faith. 
And so we marry that with Ephesians 2, and we know that that faith itself was a gift from God. So there's still no, no room to boast in the flesh here. But there's still just something rather special here where Jesus marvels at this centurion's faith. So we're just nine verses into this chapter, and we're already starting to see this picture of our Savior. As Jesus goes on in verse 11, to a town called Nain, and and he runs into a funeral. So there's a widow, so she's already lost her husband, and she's now lost her only son. So in this culture, she's about to be destitute. And it says, When the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her. And how we should love and and crave that in our own lives, right? Lord, we need your compassion on us. But here in this instance, Jesus sees her, so he stops the funeral procession. Walks up to the, the coffin, this dead body, touches it, and says, young man, I say to you, arise. And he sits up and starts to speak. Can you even imagine that? Just try to imagine that. Who is this man? This Jesus. And so it says, fear seized them, and they glorified God, which might just be an understatement, right? I mean, if you put yourself there in that situation, you go, wow, who is this man? And then it says the report spread throughout all Judea and all the surrounding country. Yeah, I imagine so. And then in verse 18, John the Baptist's disciples take word of all this back to John. And John sends two disciples back to Jesus with his famous, Are you the one or, or shall we look for another? question, right? John's having some doubts here. And Jesus is going to take action to fulfill prophecy to answer his question. In verse 21, it says, in that hour, he healed many of diseases and evil spirits. And then he tells them to go back to John, tell them what you've seen that I've essentially right, fulfilled Isaiah 29 and 35, which says, Behold, your God will come with a vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So yeah, go tell my servant John what you've seen, that I'm doing that, and encourage him. I am the one, and your God is here to save. The shepherd is here in this first advent to seek and to save, and to get his lost sheep. So what a Savior. We're only 22 verses in on this one chapter. 
So now let's start getting into the context of the part we want to dig into, beginning in verse 31. So in verse 31 it says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance, and we, we sang a dirge and you did not weep. So Jesus goes into a commentary here about the current generation. And he says they're like children in the marketplace who are calling to one another. They're just talking amongst themselves. And he says, if you hear a flute at a joyous occasion, you won't dance. And if you hear a funeral dirge, you won't weep. No matter what God does, you're like an unresponsive child to the things of God. And everything has to be according to your rules and your expectations. And clearly Jesus was not. And so he starts to explain his analogy here. Verse 33. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So this starts with a for or a because to to signal he's explaining his children in the marketplace comment. And he says that John the Baptist came in austerity and he had a, a demeanor to match, right? He did not eat bread or drink wine. He dressed in rough clothing. He lived out in the wilderness. And he ate locusts with honey. Right? And the Jewish leaders did not respond to the truth he was preaching except to say he was demon-possessed. So Jesus is now on the scene and he is eating and drinking and going to meals and feasts and, and he's hanging out with the lowlifes, Right? the prostitutes and the tax collectors. And they still don't respond to him or his teaching either, except to call him a glutton and a drunkard and guilty by association. So in other words, they're great at finding fault with others. And no one, not even the forerunner or the Messiah himself, measures up to their self-righteous view of themselves and their expectations. So now Scripture is going to take us inside one of these dinners of Jesus, and we're going to learn a lot, I think, from this center dinner. So in verse 36 here, he says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So this Pharisee was named Simon, as we'll learn later when Jesus uses his name in response to to him. And this invitation is not unusual. Teachers and people of importance were often asked to go to their homes, and, and then the door would be left open so that people could come in and stand around the walls and listen and learn from the conversation. 
And we know that many of the Pharisees would engage Jesus right, in order to try to get evidence against Him, which is probably what's going on here. And why? Because Jesus was not their expectation of a Messiah. And instead, He pointed out their self-righteousness all the time, and they hated Him for it. And this accusation here was nothing new. It was not a new complaint about Jesus. What Jesus just said in verse 34, they had said two chapters earlier, back in Luke 5, Luke 5, 28, where we read this. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. So this is the call of Matthew, right? Sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything... He rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. So as he begins to follow Jesus, he's inviting all his buddies over, all his tax collector buddies, to come hear this man Jesus. And then it says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So this is nothing new. Uh, They have been doing this all the way back to the call of Levi here. But Jesus, amazingly, and knowing all things, he goes to this Pharisee's house anyway and sits down to have this meal. Because he doesn't just associate only with the, the low lives, he also associates with the supposed high lives. Right? And he goes to this Pharisee's house and they recline at the table. Now, sanitation and hygiene are not being what it is today in our time and culture, right? And they, you know, they would lay down at the table with their feet as far away from the table as possible, right? I guess the taller the better. (laughs) And so, you know, lay down, prop up on one elbow at the table with your feet out. So let's talk a minute about the customs of the day because they play into the rest of the story. First is washing the feet of your guest. That goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis when the three visitors, including the Lord, show up at Abraham's tent to give him the promise of Isaac, the first thing out of Abraham's mouth in Genesis 18.3 is this, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. So in this culture where people walked everywhere in the dry, dusty climate and sandals, when you invited a guest into your home, you washed their feet, or had a a servant wash their feet. That's just what you did. And kisses of greeting were also customary, as well as oil for your dry skin in the arid climate. That was the, the lotion of the day. And this is just what you did for your guest. And even more so, for honored guests. So verse 37, 
says, and behold, let's pause right there for a minute. Those aren't throwaway words. Behold is a command, right? Look at this. Notice this intently. Learn from this. We are to behold what goes on here and pay special attention to this narrative. So, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, we all know what that means, right? This was a prostitute. I mean, everyone is a sinner, but what this means is someone in flagrant public sin. Everyone knows it. It's a term used for a reprobate, someone known and marked by their public sin. As the Strong's Dictionary put it, preeminently sinful, someone stained with certain definite vices or crimes. So, behold, the sinful woman who dares enter the house of a Pharisee. And when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So she hears that Jesus is at Simon's house, and knowing the custom of the open doors, I And I think knowing this is going to cost her, she goes to stand against the wall and she brings an alabaster flask of ointment, which was a perfumed oil. Now, perfume was important, um, and especially to a prostitute, and this was apparently expensive stuff in an alabaster flask. Now, there are two different alabaster ointment episodes in the Scriptures. And so, don't get this one in Luke confused with the one that's in Matthew 26 or Mark 14. Those are different, even though both are about a woman in Simon's house who anoints Jesus with an alabaster flask of ointment. That's a lot of similarity. But Matthew and Mark are recording a different episode because it occurs in Bethany. Instead of Simon the Pharisee, it's Simon the leper. It's a different woman, and she anoints his head and not his feet. But we do see in Mark 14.3 that it says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And you remember in that other episode, we see that the disciples are indignant at the waste of such an expensive resource. Right? We could have sold that. And... But in this episode in Luke, right, this prostitute may be there for the same reason, to show honor and worship and anoint his head with anointment that is at great cost to herself. And verse 38 then says, And standing behind him at his feet, so I guess she's worked her way around to wherever he's reclining at the table, and is standing there at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet 
with her tears. So she begins to weep. And it doesn't say why. But I would imagine there are many things coming together here. Maybe she's realizing she can't get to his head to pour out her offering. Or maybe as she's near him, she's overcome with shame at the kind of sinner she's been. Or maybe she realizes that this wonderful Jesus has not even been afforded the most basic dignity of a foot washing. I don't know, maybe it's a combination of all these things. But she just kneels at his feet and begins to weep. And this is not just a tear or two down the face, right, quickly wiped away. This is enough to actually wet his dry and dusty feet. So the word here is to sob or mourn aloud. So she is crying enough to actually wet his feet. And then it says, and wipe them with the hair of her head. So she does another unthinkable thing here. She lets her hair down. One article I read by MacArthur said this, All Jewish women in public were required to wear their hair up. Not to do that, right, in that culture was a sign of shame and looseness. Some of the rabbis even said if a woman did this in public, she would be divorced. It was grounds for divorce. That's interesting. But it shows you what the cultural norm was there. But she lets her hair down here. So she has no towel for washing his feet with her tears. So she uses her hair. And she's going to endure this for Jesus. And then it says, And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So now that she's cleaned his feet with her tears and wiped them with her own hair, now she kisses them and then offers her costume of this ointment. So it's an act of worship and honor and at great cost to herself. So that's one side of the story from this shameful prostitute. So now for the other side of this center dinner. In verse 39, it says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself. So Simon the Pharisee, he sees what's going on with this woman there at Jesus' feet. And when he does, the scripture gives us an insight into what's going on in his heart. And this is very important because it says, he said to himself. He didn't say this out loud to anyone. He said this in his own heart. These were his thoughts. And he is disgusted with this woman who has entered his house and what she's doing. Now think about this for a minute. Jesus is vulnerable here. Imagine what could happen with what we know. This woman of the city, a sinner, known for her reprobate lifestyle, comes in, 
lets her hair down, wipes and kisses his feet, and pours out her expensive perfume. It's pretty easy to put two and two together here, right? And accuse Jesus of sin. Guilty by association. Right? And you know the human heart, right? Our hearts are often eager to believe the worst about others. But what's very interesting is the Pharisee doesn't go there. He doesn't go there. He goes somewhere else, but he doesn't go there. Because Jesus is living and has been living a perfectly righteous life. And he knows he can't accuse him. Later on in Jesus' life, he'll, he'll say, who accuses me of sin? And nobody raises their hand. No one can or will. Right? He is living a life completely above reproach. And this Pharisee who wants to get him, he still won't go there. You know what that is? That's perfect righteousness that he is living out. And that's our perfect righteousness being lived out by the second Adam. Right? You and I can be accused and tried and justly found guilty day after day. But Jesus Christ is living a life we can't and don't. A perfectly righteous life. So when you read in the pages of Scripture things like this and see Him living out this perfect life, remember and believe that that's your righteousness before God. It's not your actions today. It's His actions then. Right? That's your hope. His righteousness, imputed, counted as ours. I'm a broken record on that, but that's our only hope. Right? So where does Simon go in his thoughts? He doesn't go toward accusing Jesus of having some relationship with this woman. Where does he go? Well, he says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So the only place he goes, and and this is bad enough, is to reassure himself that this proves Jesus is no prophet. That's where he goes. Because if he were a real prophet, And just listen to the disgust in his voice here. He would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him of all things with her hair down. For she is the worst kind of sinner. If he were a prophet, he would know this. And he would be disgusted with her like I am and send her packing. So we hear his heart. Now these next six words should get our attention. Verse 40. And Jesus, answering, said to him. Now what's so interesting about that? The Scripture just told us in verse 39, Simon said these things to himself. 
So these are his thoughts. And the very next verse says, Jesus answering him said out loud. So your words will judge you, but so will your thoughts. <laughs> they are not hidden from God. Our thoughts are not hidden. That's a very sobering thought. In fact, apart from the grace and mercy of God, that is a terrifying thought. So Jesus answers him and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And in verse 41, he says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and one owed him 50. So Jesus, knowing his thoughts, decides to tell him a story. So this moneylender had two people who would loan money to and 550 denarii in total. So if a denarii is a day's wage, that's a one and a half years worth of wages that are owed to this moneylender. So one man owes him about two months' wages, and the other owes him a year and four months of wages. An order of magnitude difference in what they owe. And verse 42 says, And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. So it becomes known that neither can pay. And then the incredible happens. The moneylender cancels the debts of both men. Canceled. It's now gone. Now there's a glory to that, and that the burden was lifted off of these men. I mean, can you imagine, say, what you owed on your mortgage was a year and a half salary, whatever your salary is for a year, year and a half. That's what you owe. And one month, uh, the month is a little longer than the money, and you can't pay. And instead of them calling you up and trying to hit you with penalties and work out some kind of payment plan, they say, we'll just cancel. Can you even imagine? Your paid in full deed will be in the mail tomorrow. I mean, we just can't even imagine that. But there's a further, deeper glory to this. Because in this situation where the moneylender cancels the debt of these two men, is the debt just swept under the rug and it's a big no harm, no foul kind of deal where everyone's whole and goes home happy? No. See, when the moneylender cancels the debt, he is canceling their debt, but he cannot cancel the cost. It still costs somebody. The cost will still be paid to the last cent, 
that unpaid year and a half of wages is still there, that 550 denarii. So what the moneylender is actually doing isn't magically canceling anything such that everyone is whole and happy. Instead, he is saying, that cost you incurred, that 550 denarii, I'll take it. I'll pay it. He's out the money. He has paid it. It's now fully on me. That cost is still there and will still be paid. Who pays it changes. From you paying it back to me to me just, I eat the cost. I pay the cost. So let that sink in. When Jesus cancels your mountain of sin debt, He does not just sweep it under a rug. Right? It's not just, okay, well, we'll forget that. Who pays the cost changes. And that's what the cross is all about. And as we consider such things and let the weight of that land on us, Jesus' next question pops into focus when he asked Simon the Pharisee, now which of them will love him more? Which of them will love the moneylender more? Which of them knows the depths of grace more? Which of them understands the honor that the moneylender is due for this more? So Simon answers in verse 43, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Now that I suppose there is just ridiculous. I don't know why he says that. The answer is obvious. In verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no order for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with that expensive ointment. You see this woman, Simon? That woman you look upon with utter disgust? All the things you denied me that are due to any guest, she has done in a very costly way. Verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. I love that verse. Jesus says to Simon the Pharisee, I tell you, Simon, her sins. 
And I, I agree totally, Simon. Her sins are many. I know, Simon. I do know the kind of woman who's touching me. I do know the mountain of her sins. And like that moneylender, I cancel them. Because I will willingly pay that cost myself. Yeah, I know. And then he says, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And that's the punchline. And we'll, we'll come right back to it. But let's keep reading. Then Jesus looks at this woman who others look on with contempt. And in verse 48, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Well, what is of more value than that? God, the creator of all that is, looks at her and he looks at you. If you're saved and says, Your sins are forgiven. There's nothing of more value and worth. Nothing. Right? Because the only other option is an eternity of enduring a just wrath. So what's more valuable? Than that, nothing. And in verse 49, he says, Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? That's a great question. He's the only one who can. It's the very one who has been offended by our sins. The very one we've rebelled against. The eternal God against whom the sins were committed. That's who. So when He forgives, it's done. Right? There is no, I forgive you on behalf of the one who was offended here. He is the one. This is the very one we rebelled against. And so as they rightly question, who is this who even forgives sins? It means that Jesus is either God or He's delusional. There is no middle ground here. And then in verse 50, He said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Christ ends with this. Your faith and your repentance and faith and trust in Me, which by the way is a gift to you from Me, as we learned in Ephesians 2, right? That has saved you. So what's the point for Simon and for us? Is the point that you need to sin more so that you can be forgiven more and love more? Well, if that's what you think, then we need to go spend some time in Romans 6. Right? Shall we sin that grace may abound? By no means. So that's definitely not the point. What about this? Maybe this one hits a little closer to home. 
is the point that if I've grown up in the church and been raised in a Christian family and have never had a big rebellious stage in my life, well then I'm just destined to love Jesus little because I've sinned little. I don't think so. So how is your love for Jesus? Could it be waning? Less than it used to be? I think there's a rather unconventional cure for that here. Which is know your sin. Know your sin. To know of just how much you have been forgiven. And therefore love much. Even if you've grown up in the church since nine months before you were born and are saved, you have been forgiven of much. More than you can even know. And so one cure is to contemplate that. You know, in two weeks, I'll be 54. You know what that means? That's right. Absolutely. 54 years young. Well, here's what it means to me. That means so far, I am aware that the moneylender has forgiven me not a 500, but 19,710 denarii. And growing. That's what He's forgiven me. He's absorbed that cost. So if your love for Him is waning, you've forgotten your sin. And not just your sin from years ago when you were in that foolish stage in your life. Your sin of today and yesterday and the day before that. Because he who thinks he is forgiven little, loves little. So let me ask you this. Who was the greater sinner Who would have been forgiven the most? This prostitute who was out seducing people into illicit sex to make money? Or maybe a man filled to the brim with human pride. Who thought he was good and even God should be impressed with his self-righteousness. I would venture to say that the self-righteous, pride-filled Pharisee is a more odious stench to God, maybe even than the prostitute. I think we're close to what Paul understood about his Pharisaical life before his Damascus Road, where he said, I am the chief of sinners. Looking back at the raw pride of his self-righteousness, 
which he says, now I count it all as dung. I think Paul loved much because he was forgiven much and he knew it. Even as a good, moral, law-abiding, filled with zeal Pharisee, he was forgiven of all that self-righteousness, of a lot of decent, moral, religious stuff that was his prideful self-righteousness. So if your love is waning, let's go back to where the Pharisees, while swimming in their own self-righteousness, first accused Jesus of hanging around with sinners. We mentioned Luke 5 where this happened, and in Luke 5.30 it says this, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at His disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well, who think they are well, have no need of a physician. But those who are sick and know it. I have not come to call the righteous in their own eyes, (laughs) but sinners to repentance. So what do we do? Well, we let the Word of God convict us all the time. Yes, even us super-sanctified Reformed folks, right? (laughs) We still don't meet the standard. We are not Jesus. We are sinners still in a lifelong battle with it. And 1 John 1.8 says, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us if we think otherwise. So we keep reading. And we keep reading things like Luke 7. And we see the glory of our Savior. And we're reminded of all that we have been forgiven of. And that debt continues to mount. And so I don't care who you are or what your life has been like. If you were saved, you have been forgiven much. Much. And we've got to remember that. And that will raise our love for Christ. The Word of God should continually raise our awareness of how much we've been forgiven every day we live. And He who has been forgiven much loves much. So if your love is waning, remember. Remember. Let the Word tell you how much you've been forgiven.
Yeah, let's go to the Lord in prayer.